For those of you that are just joining us, we have been in a study of the Minor Prophets, those 12 shorter books at the end of the Old Testament. We spent 13 weeks, one introduction and 12 uh, surveys of each one of those books, highlighting the specific focus. And now we're in, if I were writing a book, this would be Appendix A. We're talking about the prophecies within those 12 Minor Prophets concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah for the Jewish people. And then uh, just around Christmas time, we're going to look at the prophecies in those 12 minor prophets referring to his first coming. And so this morning, we're in part two. The coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. Last week we looked at the fact that God is not finished with Israel, that he is going to restore the nation of Israel, that he's going to bring her back to the promised land. We have seen that in our lifetime. From all over the world after uh, World War II and um, the Holocaust in Germany, it was kind of obvious to the Jewish people that they needed a place of refuge, that they needed a homeland. And so they were uh, inspired to begin to go back to the land of Palestine and rebuild the nation of Israel. We've seen that restoration. We pick up there this morning because many times, as I'm hearing more and more uh, today, it seems like there has been kind of a shift in thinking and the emphasis of the church. When I was first kind of getting into biblical prophecy in the 1970s, and uh, getting into some of the books that were written then, everyone was, you know, the, the Six-Day War, 1967, had just occurred, and things were kind of happening in Israel, and, and uh, people were all excited about that, and people were looking forward to um, what God was doing in the land of Palestine and all of those kinds of things, and there was great excitement. As I mentioned to you last week, there seems to be a waning interest in the return of Christ among many believers, many evangelicals. And many people even feel that the church has replaced the Jewish people as the people of God. That the church, that Israel having rejected their Messiah, God turned to the Gentiles, He's never turning back again. That that Israel is basically just going to uh, go by the wayside. Yes, you may come back as a nation, but that has nothing to do with uh, God's plan for the future, and the church is now the people of God. And I want to bring our attention this morning to the fact that Jesus is coming back, not only for the church, as the bridegroom coming for his bride, but that he's also coming back as the Messiah of Israel. And he will be returning as King of kings and Lord of lords, And the nation of Israel has a future in the economy of God. God has a plan for Israel that is not finished. And I wanted to start this morning in Romans chapter 11, because that's where Paul, in the New Testament, underscores this reality. When he says in verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. That was his unique calling. When God arrested him, literally, on the road to Damascus, and got his attention, and Paul was born again, he said, I'm going to show you all the things that you must suffer for my name's sake, And revealed to him that he was going to carry the gospel message to the Gentile world. And he specifically perceived himself as being called to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. He was the champion of grace. And he was the forerunner of those who said it is not the the carry on of Judaism that is the message of Jesus Christ. But it is the grace that God has brought in Christ For all the world. So if ever there were someone in the New Testament that you might assume 
would de-emphasize the future of Israel. It would be the Apostle Paul because of his unique calling to the Gentiles. But in fact, he is the great champion of the future of Israel. He is the one who spends three chapters in this book of Romans saying, God is not finished with Israel. God has a plan. And if you look at verse 25, he gives us some specific insight into the future when he says, I do not want you... uh, Brethren, to be uninformed of the mystery, this is Romans eleven twenty five. lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, lest we misread this verse, uh, you know, I've heard people speculate that all the Jews of all time will be saved. There there is nothing in the Bible. and, and, And remember the principles of biblical interpretation? that you cannot interpret a passage of Scripture that may be a little vague in a way that clearly contradicts a passage of Scripture that is unmistakably clear. The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die. After that, there's a judgment. There are no second chances. There is no opportunity after death to come back again. And since Jesus died on the cross of Calvary... In the first century A.D., the only way to eternal life is to receive Him personally as Lord and Savior. Those who fail to do so will die in their sins. There is no second chance. So Paul is not saying here that all of Israel, as in every Jew that's ever lived, will be saved. He's saying all of Israel that is alive at the coming of Jesus Christ, when they see Him, will be saved. There will be a complete turning of the entire nation to their Messiah when he comes back. And furthermore, we're told when this is going to happen, not the date, but the sequence. He says it will happen when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, what does that mean? Well, if if a glass is designed to hold 16 ounces, and you're pouring water into it from a pitcher, when you get to 16 ounces, the glass is full. You won't be able to put any more in. It's going it's to run over. You have filled it up. You've reached the capacity. The Bible tells us that God knows from the beginning all of those who will turn to Him by faith and trust Him. When were our names written in the Lamb's Book of Life? In the foreknowledge of God the Father, they were written there from the foundation of the earth. God knows the name of every single person that will ever be saved. It does not necessarily mean that He has predestined them to salvation in the sense of violating their choice, but it does mean that He knows their name. And He knows how many Gentiles will come into the kingdom through the message of the gospel. He knows that number. And when that number has been reached, that is the fullness of the Gentiles. That's the completion. The the end of the Gentile era has passed. And the Bible says, after that time, Jesus will come back for Israel. And so Paul makes it plain that this is a post-Gentile era return of Christ for Israel. The Deliverer will come to Zion And this is my covenant with them, he says, when I take away their sin. There will come a day in the future, after the time of the Gentiles, when Jesus will come back for the Jewish people, and when he does, he will take away their sin. Now, some of you have read um, all kinds of books, many of them novels, Can I underscore novels? How many of you know the definition of a novel? 
It is fiction, right? It is fiction. <laughs> okay, you, ha- you have to keep that in mind when you're reading novels that they are fiction. They may be fascinating. They may be exciting. In fact, if they're not fascinating and exciting, they won't sell. I uh, probably won't even get published. But novels are novels. This is the Bible. You've got to keep that separate. Some people have uh, drawn the, the idea... And some Bible teachers teach this as well, that there will come a period of time when the Gentiles, the church will be taken out of the way, and the nation of Israel will kind of, they'll rebuild the temple, and they'll go back to the ancient rituals of the Old Testament period of time, and that in that period of time, Jews will be saved by following the sacrificial rituals of the temple and so forth. What did I just say about rules of interpretation? Don't interpret a passage of Scripture in a way that contradicts an unmistakably clear passage of Scripture. Since Calvary, how are people saved? Trusting Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Can anybody be saved by offering a sacrifice at the temple? Can anybody be saved doing that? Never. Never. In fact, even in the Old Testament, they weren't saved because of the sacrifice. They were saved because they put their trust and hope in God and through the sacrifice pointed to Jesus. Since he died on the cross, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in Galatians that you cannot go back under the law for salvation because the law is not able to save people. Only Jesus can save people. So we need to keep in our minds that when the Jewish people are saved, it's not going to be because they are sacrificing in the Old Testament temple rituals. It's going to be because they trust Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They see Him. They recognize Him as Messiah. They put their hope and their faith and their trust in Him. That is the only way anyone can be saved today, Jew or Gentile. And so... The Apostle Paul indicates to us that there will come a time in the future when the Jewish people will see Jesus as the Messiah and recognize that He is the crucified one. And they will put their faith and trust and hope in Him. And as a consequence of that, they will be forgiven of their sins and they will come to faith in Christ. Now, that does not mean they won't rebuild the temple. It doesn't mean they won't restore ancient Judaism. It doesn't mean that all of those things won't take place. In fact, they probably will. There are very uh, devoted, uh, committed Orthodox Jews in Palestine today uh, whom we know are already accumulating the materials and they're waiting for the time when they can rebuild the temple. There's only one problem. There's a mosque sitting there right now. (laughs) Something has to happen to it before they can put the temple there. There are some things to to unfold, and there is no doubt in my mind that as time progresses and things begin to heat up in the Middle East, that Israel is going to resurrect the ancient religion, the Orthodox committed Jews, who are the faithful believers, not believers in Jesus, but believers in the Jewish history and, and worship, are going to restore the temple. Some events are going to happen that uh, the the mosque is going to go away and all of these things are going to transpire as, as as the cauldron begins to boil toward the end of time. But that is not the means of her salvation. The means of her salvation is when the Jewish people see Jesus Christ and are born again. When does that happen? Now, the minor prophets. If you'll turn back with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, head back toward the beginning of the New Testament, if you're not sure where that is. When you get to Matthew, keep going to the left, a few more pages, past Malachi, Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 to 9. In the end of time as we know it, in the end of this period of time, 
The Bible teaches that the political climate, we're not told the the details in Zechariah. You really have to put all of the scripture together to to kind of layer this into understanding. But we are told in Zechariah that the nations of the world are going to be formed against Jerusalem. How is that going to happen? Well, under the Antichrist, there will ultimately be a coalition government when all the nations of the world are aligned in in a common alliance. There's a one-world economy. There's a one-world government. Um, There's a cooperation among all the nations under this leader that we know, according to the book of Revelation, will be the Antichrist. But there's going to be one (laughs) hanger-out. There's going to be one rebel among them. The Jewish people in Israel are never going to align themselves with the government of Antichrist. And so, as a consequence of that, as things heat up, the Scripture tells us there's going to be a final showdown. When all the nations of the world surround Israel with the intention of annihilating her to get this blight off the face of the planet. You can see how that would happen. Can you imagine what would happen today if our State Department decided that we wanted to uh, encourage a treaty between Saudi Arabia and Israel? Do you know why that would never happen? Saudi Arabia does not acknowledge the existence of Israel. How can you make a treaty with someone you don't even have on your map? They exclude Israel from their geography. They deny her existence. They're not interested in Israel. How about a treaty with Israel and Iran? The leader of Iran has already declared, as soon as I have the opportunity, Israel is going to vanish. We're going to annihilate Israel. We want this little Satan off the planet after they annihilate the big Satan. Guess who that is? us. And so, there is this animosity already in the world that is both a political and a spiritual reality. And the Bible tells us that under the rule of Antichrist, spiritually, he hates the people of God. Politically, Israel is not going to align herself with the other nations of the world. And so, in the end of time, they are going to gather around her. And the idea is the final demolition, destruction, and annihilation of the Jewish people. Get these people off the planet, life will be better. That's what Zechariah 12, 1-9 is about. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord, who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. Now, you're reading the inclusion here, right? All the nations of the earth. There's no one in the end time who stands as an ally with the nation of Israel. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment, his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their heart, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves, so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem." 
The Lord will save the tents of Judah first in order that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And it will come about in that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. See, there's a cosmic battle raging. Here's practical application for this moment in time. Do you know that we're in a battle? Do you know there's a battle raging? There's a war going on in the heavenly realm all around us. And the children of light, the sons and daughters of God, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are engaged in a battle against the darkness and the powers of darkness. Read Ephesians chapter 2. He has translated us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His own dear Son. There is a battle raging today. As we move toward the end of time, that battle is going to heat up. And eventually, it's going to culminate in this conflict between Israel and the nations of the world, but it is a bigger conflict than that. Because we recognize that the nations of the world, according to the Scripture, lie in the power of the evil one. And that the Antichrist is actually being driven by Satan himself. And the people of Israel are the apple of God's eye. And what's really going on here is Satan and his wicked powers and the people of the world that have followed him are amassing for battle against God. And they're taking it out on Israel. And the contest has now come down to the final hour. And the Scripture says that all the nations have gathered against Israel, but that God is going to make her like a fire pot among the brands. Can you imagine the kindling, dry pine kindling? How many of you, how many of you were good Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts and you, and you did the fire thing, you know, where you had to light the fire without a match and you, you know, and you get the kindling and the shavings together and all it takes if you've got the right Dry, dry pine is the best, little slivers. And you get the kindling and, and you get the spark and it goes up. He says, I'm going to make Israel like a fire pot among the kindling. Imagine the nations gathered and Israel is going to be like throwing a torch into the kindling of the nations. They're going to go up and smoke. God is going to make her strong in that hour. But verse 10 is really the verse that focuses on our subject of the return of Christ. As you look at verse 10, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Now, what is the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the world today? To convict, to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. When God opens the eyes of a sinner to see their sin and to recognize that Jesus is Messiah, is the Savior, the Redeemer. What do we call that? It's grace, isn't it? When God opens our eyes, awakens us to our condition, shows us Jesus on the cross dying for our sin, and gives us the capacity to put our faith and hope and trust in Him, that is the grace of God. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God that no one should boast. Zechariah says, in that day, when the nations have gathered against Israel, and she becomes strong and mighty, how is that going to happen? Well, because God is going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. And here's what will happen when He does that. They will look on Me. Who's talking here? It's not Zechariah, is it? This is the prophetic voice of God. They will look on me, whom they have pierced. 
and they will mourn. Now, Jesus is coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. The first time he came as a baby, born, laid in a manger, born in obscurity. Only the shepherds became aware and some wise men from the Orient. People largely did not recognize him. When he comes back the second time, it will be much different. He will be king of kings. He will be lord of lords. The Bible tells us that he's going to come uh, burst out of heaven riding this amazing white horse. That a flaming sword is going to come out of his mouth. That he's going to be dramatic and glorious and amazing and all of his splendor. But who are they going to see? The Jewish people. They're going to see the one they pierced. The image they're going to have is Jesus on the cross. In other words, Zechariah is telling us they're seeing him as the one who has already come and is coming again. Their eyes will be opened and they will see the crucified one coming as king of kings. They will recognize that they are the ones who put the Messiah on the cross. It says, They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. Here he's coming, king of kings, and, and here the remnant of Israel is mourning. Why? Because in their heart they are grieved. It's that moment of conviction. It is that moment of awareness. We too are sinners and we crucified the Lord of glory. And they're sad over that. But their sadness is going to be quickly turned to joy. Because as they are redeemed in that vision, that sighting, there's going to be marvelous deliverance for them. In Zechariah 13, verses 1 and 9, it says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Now, Paul tells us that a partial hardening has occurred during this time of the Gentiles. It is hard to win Jewish people to Christ. Have you ever tried? Do you know what I'm talking about? It's hard to win anybody to Christ, but Jewish people are particularly stubborn. They don't want to follow the Christian Messiah, the Christian Jesus. They, they, they don't want to believe that he was Messiah. It's very difficult uh, to win the Jewish people to Christ. It is technically against the law to proselytize in the nation of Israel. If you're an evangelical Christian, you technically cannot witness about Jesus, the Messiah, in the streets of Jerusalem. They are, they are resistant. They are stubborn. But one day, there will be a fountain opened for them for sin and for impurity. In other words, they are going to come to a place where cleansing and, and release and forgiveness is available. The time of the Gentiles will have passed, and God will open the eyes of His people. Verse 9 says, And I will bring a third part of them through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. Then they will then call on My name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are My people, and they will say, The Lord is My God. What does he mean by a third of them? Well, if you read all of chapters 12, 13, and 14, you find that in this last battle, the nations of the world actually invade Jerusalem, and many of them are already afflicted. Many of them have been defeated. They've been overrun. In fact, if we go to chapter 14, we'll see some of that. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled, 
but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. In other words, it's looking bad. Are you getting the image in your mind of what's going on? It's looking bad. Jerusalem has been invaded. Palestine, the armies are moving in. The, the, the people of the city have already been attacked. And many of them are suffering. But it says, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when He fights on a day of battle. And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. So half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. And you will flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, O oh my God, will come and all of his holy ones with him. And it will come about in that day that there will be no light, for the luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But it will come about that at the evening time there will be light. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, half of them toward the western, and it will be in summer as well as winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. What do we see in the book of Acts as Jesus is meeting with his disciples, giving them his last words? But you wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. You know, and as he's talking with them, he begins to rise up out of their sight. His feet leave the ground. This resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in bodily form. Thomas, touch me if you don't believe. Put your hands in the nail pierced, uh, in my nail pierced hands. Thrust your hand into my side. Touch me. See that I am not a ghost. I'm a real person. I am flesh and blood, check me out. He's standing there in front of his disciples. Suddenly his feet leave the ground. And he's talking to them as he's rising. And they're starting to watch him. And then they look up and, and he goes up into the clouds and, and a cloud receives him out of their sight. And they're just kind of standing there like... And then all of a sudden, angels appear. And they say, what are you doing standing here with your mouth open looking into the heavens? Go to Jerusalem and do what we told you to do. For this same Jesus, whom you have seen rise from you, will come again in the same way. This Jesus will come again in the same way. What do we read here in verse 4? On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. This same Jesus who went up there will come back here and his feet will plant on terra firma on the Mount of Olives in the land of Palestine. We read in other places of Scripture that a great earthquake is going to occur. The whole geography is going to be transformed. In fact, all the land around uh, Jerusalem is going to become flattened like a plain, but the city of Jerusalem will remain on a mountain. We see this valley opens up. We see all of these changes that take place as the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes and plants his feet on the Mount of Olives and he begins to reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You can read other passages where he comes with the flaming sword from his mouth. The flesh is melted off of the armies around him. You know, I, I, don't, I don't even think, you know, some people have tried to say, well, what does this mean? Oh, this is a nuclear blast. Listen, you don't need a nuclear blast when you have a Jesus blast. When he comes back and the breath of his mouth and his wrath, it says literally the flesh is going to melt off of the armies around him. You talk about Jerusalem being a fire pot thrown into the kindling. The defeat is going to be unimaginable. They think they're winning. They think they're annihilating Israel. 
uh, two-thirds of them have already been destroyed in the land of Judah. But now, here comes the king of kings. And in that moment, amazing things instantly transpire. The Jewish people, as they think they're taking their last breath on the planet, look up and see Jesus. And their eyes are opened. And they know, the ones left alive, they know, this is Messiah, the crucified one. And the scripture says, they believe. They believe. You remember Ezekiel from last week in the Valley of Dry Bones? As the bones come together and the flesh comes together and the sinew comes together and they stand up an exceeding army. But Ezekiel says, they are without life. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the Spirit, to the wind, to the Ruach. Prophesy to the Spirit. Say to the Spirit, come and breathe upon this army. And all of a sudden, the Spirit of God sweeps across them. Ezekiel tells, he interprets his own symbolism. He says, the wind is the Spirit. And the Spirit of God breathes upon them. And they come to life instantly. And the Jewish people, when they see Jesus... In a moment, they're grief-stricken. They're heartbroken. This is the Messiah. They missed Him, but here He is. And they believe Him. And they trust Him as Lord and Savior. And they are born again in a moment. If we look in Isaiah chapter 66, if you just turn back a little bit, I want to show you this in a moment thing. It's an amazing passage in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7. If you read the whole context, and I can't possibly go through all of this in one, one sermon and, and deal with every bit of it, we would be here a very long time. But you go home and read these end chapters of Isaiah. Start, start in chapter 60 and read to the end. But in chapter 66, verse 7, we know this is the end times. And then it says, before she travailed, she brought forth, before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy who has heard of such a thing, who has seen such a thing. Isaiah is again using a, a metaphor of childbirth. He's using a symbol. You women that have had children, you went through what we have euphemistically called labor. It was probably something else in your mind at the time besides just labor. Very difficult. But what Isaiah is saying is, here is a baby about to be born without labor. In other words, there's no warning. There's no anticipation. There's no, are the contractions getting closer? There's none of that. All of a sudden, there's a child. And Isaiah said, who ever heard of such a thing? And we're not talking about a miscarriage or premature. We're talking about healthy birth with no labor in an instant. And so he says, can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed... She also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says the Lord? Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad, all you who mourn over her. Because in that moment, as Israel is right at the breaking point, Paul says the gifts and calling of God are without revocation. God made a covenant with Abraham. And in his covenant, he said, I will give you this land, and it will be yours and your descendants forever. Israel is on the brink of extinction. It is her last hour. Two-thirds of the remnant have already been wiped out in the battle. Only one-third of the inhabitants are left. It looks like she's going down for the count. 
And God says, do you think I'm going to come to this moment and not bring life? Can a nation be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? What Isaiah is saying is when they see Messiah, the nation of Israel, all the ones remaining alive will look on him and believe. Now I want to go back to Zechariah just for a moment. Because I glossed over something that we cannot omit this morning. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. In the last sentence of the verse, Then the Lord, O my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. What's this all about? How does the church factor into all of this? What about those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? What about this last battle? What about the Jewish people and all the nations gathered against Israel? How do we factor in? Well, guess who the holy ones are? You know what the New Testament word for saint literally means in the Greek? The holy ones. We are saints. Holy ones made holy through the blood of Jesus Christ. The scripture teaches that we will be caught up with the Lord in the air. The rapture of the church will have taken place. And when he comes back, he will come with the church. We are not going to miss out on this glorious moment. But we are going to be returning with him, ushering him in, as it were, the bride and the bridegroom. He will be for us the bridegroom coming for his bride. He will be for Israel, the Messiah, their king, coming for his people. Look in 2 Thessalonians, back to the New Testament. We're going to wrap up in the New Testament this morning. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. To this end we pray that our God may count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith and power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified. God says there's coming a day for the church as well when all those who have afflicted the church in persecution will be dealt judgment, but we will be glorified with the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, probably just back a page in your Bible, verses 13 to 18, Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. Now you know that's a euphemism for who have died. We don't want you to be informed about those who have died, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. I'm glad that Paul put it the way he did. He didn't say that we would not grieve. We always grieve. 
when loved ones die. And the Bible does not gloss over that. But it quickly says, we will not grieve like those who are hopeless. Because we have hope. And here's what it is. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. This is the passage that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians that we call the rapture. And he says, in the rapture, two things will happen. Everyone who has died in Jesus Christ will come out of the grave. Now, he uses the term fallen asleep here as a softening of the concept of death for a specific reason. He does not, he is not teaching the doctrine of soul sleep. Some people believe that. They believe that when you die, you kind of sleep in the ground uh, until Jesus comes back. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches, Paul says in another passage in the Philippians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The instant that our soul leaves our body, we open our eyes and see Jesus. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But these bodies of ours wear out. Our soul is eternal, but these bodies wear out in this temporal time. And they will be put in the ground or whatever we do with them. And one day, when Jesus comes back, one day, when he comes for his church, the dead in Christ shall rise. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For we shall not all sleep, Paul says, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall rise. And we which are alive shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So here's an amazing thing. For the church, there is going to be resurrection and instant glorification as the trumpet sounds and those who have died come out of the ground, their bodies coming together with their soul in the air in a reunion of body, soul, and spirit, in the wholeness of redemption, we will be forever with the Lord. And if you happen to be alive on that day, you haven't died yet, but you're a follower of Jesus Christ. The word changed is the Greek word metamorphosed, metamorphosize. You're going to be changed, metamorphosed. Something's going to happen. And we have a beautiful image of that. God gave us butterflies that came from caterpillars. And the caterpillar, slow, pokey, slimy thing, crawls out on a limb, hangs down and spins a cocoon, and snuggles up, and then one day comes out of that cocoon a beautiful, flying, free butterfly. And biologically, we call that process metamorphosis. There's a, there's a transformation. What went into the cocoon is not what came out of the cocoon. And the scripture says we will be metamorphosed. We will be tra- changed in a moment. <laughs> it's not going to take a process. You don't have to spin a cocoon. But in the twinkling of an eye. I, I don't know if a twinkling is the same as a blinking. Blinking is pretty fast. But twinkle, that's really fast. You know, that's just a little glimmer of light. Because bing, in the twinkling of an eye, if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you're going to be changed. Your feet are going to leave the ground. Human feet are going to leave the ground, and somewhere between there and the sky, you're going to be resurrected, glorified, translated, transformed into your eternal state 
No more sickness, no more pain, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more all of those things that fit our mortal human condition. But we will be in the presence of Jesus. And all the dead in Christ (laughs) will hear the trumpet a split second before we do because the dead in Christ will raise. Then we which are alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with him. Friends, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back for his church. He will rapture, resurrect his glorified church. But he's coming back for Israel. They have not been abandoned. They have not been neglected. They have not been eliminated. We have the privilege of living now in this time of the Gentiles to faithfully preach the gospel and bring as many as possible to faith in Jesus Christ. And when that time is over, and the last Gentile, whose name is at the end of the column on the last page of the Lamb's Book of Life, says yes to Jesus, the time of the Gentiles will pass, and then the King will come. All who know him will be caught up to meet their Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with him. Those Jews who are remaining in that final holocaust, that final battle, will see the King of kings and Lord of lords coming in glory and all of his holy ones, all the church with him. Their first thought will be, oh my, We crucified Jesus. He was the Nazarene, our Messiah. They will be sad. And then when his feet land on the Mount of Olives and that healing stream begins to flow, their sadness will be turned to joy, their mourning to gladness, as he rescues them and with the breath of his fury and wrath blasts the nations of the world and establishes his kingdom. And we will reign with him for a thousand years. That's next Sunday sermon. We will reign with him for a thousand years. And the Jewish people will live under the dominion of a son of David who will sit on the throne in righteousness and rule the world from the city of Jerusalem. A marvelous future. God has not left out Israel He certainly hasn't left out us. We all get to share in the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, all we can do in the face of this marvelous message is say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Oh, that it would be today. That it would be soon. That it would be in our lifetime. Even so, come quickly. We look forward to your coming. We, we live our lives with our ears tuned to the sound of a distant trumpet, waiting for the crystal clear note that heralds the return of Jesus Christ. The trump of God shall sound, and the dead in Christ shall rise, and we which are alive will be caught up to meet them in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Praise your name. Amen.